Our sermon is over the Saturday, Holy Saturday, as it's been called throughout history, or Preparation Day, as it is called in Scripture, as we are entering into Holy Week, looking at the greatest day in history, Resurrection Sunday. But my most interesting day, what I believe to be the most interesting day within the three days of the death, burial, and resurrection is that middle day, the day in between the crucifixion and the resurrection, that Saturday. And we don't know much about the Saturday. There's not much written in Scripture over it. There's not much in history over what happens during that Saturday. And it is, it is so mysterious, so silent, so dark, such a, a void in the story of Jesus, but so essential to the story of Jesus, and thus so essential to us. See, we, we don't know much about that Saturday, but we do have accounts on leading up to that day. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew 27. That's where we're going to be this morning, looking at the story of the burial of Christ. Matthew 27, starting in verse 57. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. And it goes on to tell us how Pilate thinks the disciples are going to steal the body, so he puts guards in front of the body, and then it goes on to the resurrection. There's not much written on the Saturday. And that's, this happens throughout all of the four accounts of the Gospel. So we don't know much about what happens. All we know is this cliffhanger that Mary and Mary are left sitting opposite across from looking at the tomb. But we do know what happens before and after. So allow me to paint the, the scene sort of leading up to the Saturday Throughout Jesus' ministry, his three years of ministry, he has been proclaiming, preaching, teaching the good news. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is approaching. Now, good news for us is whenever something good happens and we tell somebody about it. Good news, we're pregnant. Good news, I got a promotion. Good news, I won the lottery I have been praying especially hard for that last one. Good news is whenever we hear something or something good happens and we tell somebody about it. Good news that Jesus is proclaiming is for something that is about to happen. That it hasn't happened yet. There is good news for you. There is grace unrelenting coming after you. 
There is joy to be found in the suffering. Good news. Good news. Your, your God, your Father, wants a personal, visceral, real relationship with you. Good news. There is a river of living water that only I can give you. There is peace, peace for those who are weary. There is rest for the restless. There is joy in the suffering. There is healing for those who are hurting. The blind will see. The lame will walk. On and on. Jesus preaches good news. And on Friday, Jesus was sent to carry his own cross by the very men who claim to be the most religious people on earth. And by all accounts, they were. And on Friday, they go to Pilate and they say, we want him crucified. We want this Son of God who claims to be Emmanuel, God with us. We want him to be crucified on a cross, which is the worst death that we can think of. And so Pilate says, I see no fault in this guy. I see no fault in him. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose the worst criminal I know of because there's no way that the religious leaders would rather have Barabbas in their life. But instead they come back at Pilate and they say, no, we would rather have the worst criminal that you know of than have Jesus Christ walk another day on this earth. And as Jesus hung there on the cross, with a sign above his head that said, King of the Jews, as a joke. They laughed. They mocked him. They hurled insults at him as he breathed his last. They cast lots for his clothes. And they were filled with so much joy and smiling because they think that they had won. As Jesus' mom watches her son say, It is finished. Where's this good news again? Where's this, this hope for the future? Where's this everlasting love? Where's, where's this joy? Where's this, where's this good news, Jesus? The Saturday is filled <laughs> with hopelessness. It is, it is really empty. It is silent. It is dark. It is mysterious. That's what the Saturday feels like. Now, Saturday in Scripture may just be one day, but in your life, gosh, it could be weeks at a time. It could be seasons at a time where you're wondering, is tomorrow going to be better? Where waking up is just the hardest thing for you to do where something that wasn't your fault or a few bad decisions that you made have completely shattered your hopes and dreams. And this Saturday moment has turned into a couple of weeks or you are just living in the Saturday wondering, is this all? Remember where Mary and Mary are sitting. They are opposite of the tomb, looking at the tomb, just wondering, Is this it? Is this the end of the story? This cannot be all. They are waiting for good news to be proclaimed again, and maybe you are sitting opposite the tomb. Wondering, 
it will this good news be proclaimed again? Yes, it will. Now what I want to do now is I want to shift gears a little bit because that was heavy, so everybody take a deep breath. <sighs> Breathe out. I want to shift gears a little bit now because that was a lot of bad news, but now I want to turn to some good news. And I want us to turn to 2 Samuel 7. I know what you're thinking. 2 Samuel 7. What is a gospel message doing in 2 Samuel 7? Just bear with me and I'll show you. 2 Samuel 7 is a beautiful chapter. One of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament. David is my favorite Old Testament character. I love David. And so 2 Samuel 7, this is a conversation about the covenant between God and David. And it's truly an awesome chapter where God speaks and he promises a covenant, and then David speaks and he promises God a covenant. This is the, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 7, we're going to start with verse 11. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. My love, but my love, will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now here's David's reply to God's covenant, David's own covenant with God. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build a house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. Now, which word do you think God is really trying to just hammer into the mind of David? I highlighted it and I bolded it for you. Forever. God is really trying to let David know that this covenant, this promise that I am making to you is going to last forever. This is like in the movie The Sandlot, if you've ever seen that movie, my favorite childhood, one of my favorite childhood movies. It's like in The Sandlot whenever Squints is telling the story about his grandfather and the beast, you know, the dog, the beast, and he's saying, the beast will be locked away forever, forever, and he repeats it like 20 times. That's what's happening in 2 Samuel 7. He, God is letting David know that this 
promise that I'm making to you will never fall flat. It'll never fall through. I am not going to break this covenant with you halfway through. This promise of forever is going to last forever. And he's saying to David that, David, I know you are going to mess up. I know you are going to make mistakes. And in a few chapters, you're going to mess up really big when you take another man's wife and you put that man on the front lines, if you remember that story. And David, I know you're going to mess up. And in fact, you are going to be swarmed by your enemies. You're going to be surrounded by your enemies, encapsulated by them. And actually, David, you're going to have to be on the run for your life, hiding in caves. But my promise of forever that your kingdom, that my kingdom will be established through your line forever will never go away. And so David says, if you're going to promise me your forever, I'm promising you mine. And what we know from the story of Jesus in Matthew and Luke, the genealogy of Jesus is that from David's line comes Jesus Christ. And what the religious leaders did not know whenever they were crucifying him was that the royal robes that they put on Jesus in mockery and the crown of thorns that they put on Jesus' head in shame and the title king of the Jews they put above his head as a joke was actually true. The crucifixion is Jesus' inauguration into becoming king of the world and fulfilling the prophecy of old, the scriptures of old saying that the suffering servant must die and he's fulfilling the promise of forever that God makes to David that this kingdom will be established forever through someone in your line that's Jesus Christ whenever Jesus died the promise of forever did not die with him it came into fruition When Jesus died, the promise of forever, God being with us always, did not die with him. It came into fruition. And when Jesus says, it is finished, that is a war cry against Satan in hell saying, I have won. It is done. It is finished. Death no longer has any victory over those who follow me. Sin no longer has any sting because I just took it all. And it may be finished, but the gospel of the good news is just getting started. You understand that for 2,000 years, People have been trying to tear down the walls of churches all over the world, but yet the church still stands. For 2,000 years, there have been those who have dedicated their lives to ending Christianity, debunking what Jesus did, but yet in the midst of the storm, what we say is that I'm going to sing Your praise is Jesus Christ because of what you did on the cross. And that there is no amount of persecution that will tear us down. There's no amount of strife that will break down these walls. But instead, in the midst of the storm, I am going to give praise to Jesus Christ. And the church still stands today. And its followers are still following Christ more than ever today. 
in countries where it is illegal to read your Bible and follow Christ, there's now an uprising of Christianity. In Africa and in Korea, the amount of Christians has gone up exponentially. The, the, the percentage there is incredible compared to what it was 100 years ago. In countries where new languages are being brought up, there are new Bibles being printed in their language every single week. What we know and what we believe as followers of Jesus Christ and as members of his church is from covenant to cross, the promise of forever remains. From covenant to cross, the promise of forever remains. And in our life, every single one of us sitting here, every single one of us watching online who follows Jesus Christ with all we are, from covenant to cross to you, the promise of forever remains even in the Saturday. Where all hope feels lost, we have hope where fear is crowding in, we will fear nothing. When our enemies are, are caving in, we scream, this is how I fight my battles. Now that was the greatest song I could listen to this morning. Like if you haven't heard the, the song, this is how I fight my battles, um, and it, like you aren't screaming that in your car when you're driving, like, that song is insane. That song, I wish that that song was around whenever I played football because I would listen to that before my games and I would be cracking skulls. Like, that gets me so pumped up. And I listened to it today and was like, all right, here we go. This is a heavy topic. I'm talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. There's a lot of bad news here. There's a lot of silence and darkness going on. But guess what? This is how we fight our battles because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Over and over and over again, we have examples. Hebrews 12 tells us we have a cloud of witnesses that we have as backing us up whenever we go into battle. And this is how we fight our battles, and it's what David writes in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down beside green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Saturday, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they, they comfort me. You have prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. Say this last word together with me, church. Forever. Y'all did really good there. Y'all have done that before. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David is immediately thinking back to the covenant he made with God. 
in 2 Samuel 7. He's saying, God, you promise that my house will last forever. You promise that your kingdom will reign forever in your name. So I am going to dwell in your house, Lord, forever. This is how we fight our battles. This is how we make it through our Saturdays. What we know is from covenant to cross to us, the promise of forever remains. And what that looks like is that whenever, you know, maybe some of us in here have lost our jobs and COVID is a really rough time for losing jobs and seeking jobs. And whenever you lost your job, you were just in your driveway, maybe banging your hand against the steering wheel, wondering how am I going to provide for my family? In that Saturday moment, God has not left you. Never has. I know that a lot of us in here have had personal struggles with, with health or with, with COVID, or we've known somebody that has had uh, health problems. And for some of us, what's, what's really hard is whenever we cannot go into the hospital to visit somebody because of restrictions, but maybe you have been bedside with somebody. And in that moment, you don't know what the doctor is going to say is good or bad. In that Saturday moment, God has not left you. If your marriage or your family is in between a rock and a hard place right now, and maybe you just need to say, okay, I need to begin to love God more than I love myself, more than I love them. Because when I love God more, that will reciprocate to my family. And whenever you need to have hard conversations, God has not left you. Never has. If your political party did not win, God has not left you. We put our hope in God and not political parties. God has not left you. So what we have to do is we have to respond to this promise of forever like David responded with a promise of, God, you've got me forever. You've got me forever. And so in order to help us do that, what I want us to do this week with this, this good news that even in the Saturday, God is still with us, has never left us. What I have for us this week are two challenges. Two challenges, one small and one big challenge. Our small challenge is to memorize Psalm 23. Memorize that psalm. There are plenty of songs that have it as its you know, chorus. I you know, quoted, this is how I fight my battles. Oh man, you listen to that song every single day, you're going to kick today's butt. Like that, that song will get it going. But memorize Psalm 23. I had a professor in grad school, our homework assignment was to memorize Psalm 23. And for this assignment, we had to set an hour alarm for every single hour of the day. And when the alarm went off, we recited Psalm 23. And it was a great way to practice it. And so this class was at a conference. So we would do class during the day, conference stuff at night. And so that night, we were all at a worship night together. We were all singing side by side. And I kid you not, in the middle of the worship night, about 20 phones started going off right then. 
And so all of us were like, oh my gosh, oh my, okay, okay, turn off, turn off, turn off. But what was really cool after that was that I knew that the, you know, 10 or so people that were around me from that class, we were all reciting Psalm 23 together. And you know that, that song Surrounded, where it says, it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. Like in that moment, thinking back to it, it was like, okay, I feel like I'm surrounded, but I am literally surrounded by people who are reciting Psalm 23. It was a really cool moment. And so maybe that's how you memorize it. You set that hourly alarm. And if you do that, what's really cool is that you're going to have a tough morning or you're going to have a really bad meeting that just doesn't go your way or your kid is going to screw up and you're going to get mad at them. I don't, I'm not a parent. I don't know. And you're going to get, you're going to have a, a Saturday moment where you're just like, gosh, the future does not look bright. But in 20 minutes, that alarm is going to go off and you're going to say, ah, the Lord is my shepherd. And it's going to automatically help you through. I love that exercise. And so uh, maybe that's how you memorize Psalm 23. That's our small challenge. Our big challenge, you ready for this one, is to read the entire gospel of Mark in one sitting. <gasps> one sitting. I know, it sounds daunting at first, but let me break this down. The Gospel of Mark is the shortest gospel. So instead of reading 28 chapters of Matthew, I'm only telling you to read the 16 in Mark. You're welcome. It's the shortest gospel. And it really, it's the first gospel, actually, that was written. And so you get a full story of Jesus. And Crossway.org averages out that it takes an hour and 23 minutes to read the entire gospel of Mark. So I know that we can block out an hour and a half someday this week to read the gospel of Mark. I did this last year, and I made the promise to myself that every single Saturday before Easter, I'm going to read the entire gospel of Mark. And so this is, this is how I did it. So I'm just telling you from experience, if you want to do it this way, I encourage you to do so. Wake up early, because what happens on that Saturday is we wake up, we sleep in, and we say, oh my gosh, I don't have enough eggs. I got to go get eggs at Walmart. Walmart's out of eggs. Where am I going to go next? H-E-B, H-E-B is crowded. And we, we let the whole Saturday just go right by us without feeling the weight of that day. And so what I encourage us to do is wake up early on that Saturday, grab a big cup of coffee, maybe the whole pot, get to our favorite spot in our house. Maybe it's a back porch, maybe it's a recliner, or your favorite coffee spot in the city, or maybe El Puerto de Jalisco's, which is my favorite spot in Temple right across the street here. Uh, that's a shameless plug for them. They did not ask me to say anything about their restaurant. Um, go, go to your favorite spot and just block out an hour and a half and just simply sit with the Gospel of Mark in one sitting. I promise you, you're going to read the entire story and you're going to say, I'm ready for Sunday now. And for those of us who, who might not be, be followers of Jesus Christ, um, I encourage you to read the entire Gospel of Mark on Saturday. Maybe you're thinking, okay, well, Easter is a pretty big deal for Christians and I don't really know why. Read the Gospel of Mark and you'll, you'll learn why. So I encourage us all of you. That's our big challenge and I know that we all can do it. If not Saturday, 
you have an hour and a half in your week to where you can read it in one sitting. That's our small challenge. Memorize Psalm 23. Big challenge. Read the Gospel of Mark. I know that we can do that, and I know that we will be blessed by doing those things. We don't know much about the Saturday. There's not much in Scripture, not much in history over what happened that day. And I, I believe the reason why is because it was just silent. And nobody really wanted to keep an account over what that day held. It was just dark and, and mysterious. But another reason why I believe that it jumps so quickly to the Sunday is because the gospel authors could not wait to tell you what happens next on that Sunday. And I know that Scott and the Western Hills team cannot wait to tell you what happens next, next Sunday. And so I'm very excited to hear what they've got in store for Easter Sunday. From covenant to cross to us, the promise of forever remains, even in the Sunday. And even though we may walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the Saturday, we will fear no evil for the Lord our God, our King, is with us forever.